You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze the various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, distributed ledger technologies, and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about an application of blockchain technology that for long has been seen as a game changer for the way we conduct major social and political processes around the world. Today, we're going to be talking about the topic of blockchain voting. As of recording this episode, we're just a little more than a couple of months away from the 59th presidential elections in the US. And also given that we are in the middle of a pandemic, the elections this time will rely heavily on mail-in voting. So we thought no better time than this to discuss the topic of blockchain voting, to talk about what it is, uh, why it is looked at with so much of interest, and how it has been tested so far in the real world. That's very interesting, uh, KK, especially, and and you're right, it's quite an apropos time to discuss this. But before we get into blockchain voting itself, I think it will be useful to kind of understand what is the actual standard voting procedure uh, that is followed in many places around the world today. You know, a little bit about how that works and why it is set up the way it is. Sure. So just take the US as an example, since uh, it is the world's oldest democracy. About a couple of hundred years back, voting was a process where people would generally just gather at a place and, you know, call out their votes verbally. And uh, an election judge would make a count of your votes and uh, the result would be decided fairly quickly in this manner, right? And so this was the simplest form of voting that people in the 1800s adopted in a country like the US. But uh, obviously the problem with this was that there was no anonymity in place, uh, you know, where the voting was happening. Uh, You could see who was voting for whom and so people could be corrupted or coerced uh, to vote a certain way. Also, with this simple method, the votes could not be recounted easily, you know, unless you just conducted the whole voting again, right? So these were some of the basic flaws with this sort of a simple mechanism of voting that that, that started, you know, in, in the early 1800s. And uh, as a solution to these problems, paper ballots were introduced around mid-1800s, uh, wherein you would just write down the name of your candidate that you're voting for and uh, deposit it into a ballot box. But again, the problem with this was that, you know, if you were putting in your votes in a paper ballot, you might just include more than one vote for the same candidate. And, you know, it would be hard to basically figure out, you know, if you if you did that or not, you know, if you duplicated or if you uh, cast in multiple votes, writing down the same candidate's name. Long story short, you know, th- there were two main characteristics of voting that emerged from this process, right? So first is that vote counting, you know, should happen accurately, you know, if, if you are not having to trust an individual. The second was that uh, the voting should be done secretly or anonymously so that, you know, the voters cannot be corrupted or coerced by different political parties, right? In in other words, the the main things that emerged out of this sort of voting process was that each person should be allowed to vote only once. Each vote should be accurately recorded and it should be accurately counted. And uh, the fourth being that the voter should be able to ensure that their vote was counted without having to rely on a person. And most importantly, each vote should be secret, you know, it should be anonymous. So uh, in 1890s, 
finally the election officials you know came up with a ballot that looked to solve many of these problems and uh, compared to the ballot that was used before and and this this was actually this originated in australia for the very first time so uh, in australia the uh, a new sort of ballot was introduced where the ballot had names of candidates already printed on it with a checkbox marked against uh, each of the candidates name so you would not have to write down you know so basically your handwriting could not be mapped to you to figure out you know who you voted for and the second major change that was brought about around the same time was the concept of voter registration so basically a voter would enter the polling booth and uh, at the polling booth you would have a representative of the democratic party as well as the uh, republican party just to ensure that you know the the whole voting process is happening correctly you you know you have representation from both the parties then you know once once the voter enters the polling booth they register they would take the ballot which which has the candidate's name uh, printed on it and then they would go to a separate booth uh, which would be a private booth you know where uh, there's a railing and somebody could not you know glance over your shoulder to see who you're voting for so you would go in a private space you would mark your vote against the candidate of your choice and then you would walk up to the ballot box ballot box is the place you know where you will finally drop in this vote and even at the ballot box you would have representation from both the republican party person as well as the democratic party person uh, over there just to make sure that you know the whole process is happening smoothly without any uh, errors you know here and there so even though these steps solved most of the problems in the voting process you know that existed until then it still left the door open for certain inaccuracies in the vote counting process so as as years went on finally mechanical voting or mechanical vote counting uh, machines were invented that automated the process so as to remove the human involvement or the human errors that would creep in in, in the counting process i would say you know some of these same mechanisms have continued to be used uh, in the world in in most of the world up to early 2000s and then electronic voting machines came into being you know as an alternative to paper ballot the paper ballot still exists with the electronic voting machines but uh, a lot of the voting today happens on evms or electronic voting machines right so but again the problem with these machines is that you know they can be tampered with or they can be manipulated you know they can be hacked so that's pretty much how the voting process evolved in the last 200 years uh, and uh, any new system that comes in today you know whether based on blockchain or some other technology would need to have a solution for each of these problems that that were addressed you know in the last 200 years which means voting has to be accurate the counting has to be accurate uh, voter anonymity has to be maintained and there needs to be an accountability you know i should be able to make sure that okay my my vote was actually registered so so this is sort of the history of you know how voting has evolved so nikhil you know as as a next step can we go into how blockchain comes into this picture you know what what are the novel solutions that blockchain brings in that you know that can make this whole process better than than how it has been in the last 200 years yeah yeah sure sure okay okay i mean uh, and and uh, that was a great explanation and as you very correctly pointed out you laid out all the uh, uh, all the requirements that any system whether it be blockchain or uh, something else uh, basically needs to meet in order for it to become considered as a uh, a valid way to vote right so so basically when you think about that so the question uh, obviously is why use block blockchains for voting in the first place i mean what is this about blockchains that uh, help 
uh, this particular process. And uh, one of the things, uh, one of the primary things that pretty much most of these systems basically look to blockchain to kind of uh, solve is the idea of uh, once a ballot is cast, it cannot be tampered with. So one of the things that a physical ballot paper or a, uh, you know, the paper-based ballot uh, electoral process makes it hard to do is the fact that, yeah, it's physical and it's difficult to change all the votes or change everything uh, once, uh, you know, the vote has been cast and the ballot has been put into the box. You need to physically change everything, um, uh, each piece of paper in order to uh, make a difference, right? Whereas in the digital world, if it is online, we know that copying or changing digital things are very easy once you figure out how to do it the first time, right? So once you figure out how to do it the first time, it becomes trivial to change all of them. And that was the case for a long time for everything uh, until blockchains came around. And then blockchains came up with this mechanism which made it much more hard to uh, change data once it has been stored into a blockchain. And this uh, immutability property is one of the primary reasons that are given for blockchains to be used, right? Uh, So that's one reason. Uh, Another reason I think, which I personally think is important, uh, but I don't think many uh, of these apps have actually thought about or used, is the fact that a blockchain-based uh, system is resilient and uh, allows for multiple nodes to be available for a uh, for a vote to be cast at, right? So whenever you look at online systems, and one of this is actually as a preface to that, one of the things that I have, we have noticed when we were researching uh, blockchain voting uh, for this particular episode is the fact that, you know, a vast majority, there is a lot of literature uh, on why security experts at all levels feel that online or digital voting systems have not reached the level of uh, maturity uh, or security required for voting, right? So there is a lot of skepticism to any blockchain voting system and quite a few of it is, is justified. And it's basically, they don't actually point to blockchain per se. They just say that blockchain itself is not enough. And most of the other parts of systems, basically, to build an electoral voting system, simply having a blockchain is not enough, right? You need to have a user interface. You need to have all of these other things. And that's where most of these security experts have problems with it. The fact that once it has reached the system, blockchain that it is uh, not tamperable is only one aspect of it. We need to also consider all the other aspects of the system. Now, one of the main arguments that the security experts point out is the fact that making the database secure or making this immutable, data immutable, once it reaches the system, basically changes the point of weakness from the data store to another part, right? And so what people will start looking at is, okay, how can I, uh, what a hacker would look at is, how can I kind of tamper with the data in transit into the blockchain, right? Uh, 
and uh, whether I can try uh, uh, even tamper with the data uh, before it even leaves the uh, user's device, the device that uh, or user interface that the user is using to actually submit the vote, right? And so that's necessarily uh, one of the things where obviously the traditional thing that I have seen is that most people just use the blockchain as a data store. But I feel that, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a bit of a shame because I haven't actually seen one and I'm happy to be told or somebody in the comments please enlighten me. There is no not much reference made to the fact that as a decentralized system, blockchains actually provide you with multiple uh, nodes to which uh, data can be broadcast, right? So what I would imagine a blockchain system to have is a mechanism by which it randomly picks some node on a network or even multiple nodes on a network and sends the vote to all of them in the hope that uh, if there is a hacking attempt, not all of them are basically under attack. So that definitely is also, I think, a characteristic of resilient systems like blockchains, which actually help. So just uh, a question, uh, Nikhil. Uh, so if we were to implement this on a public blockchain, wouldn't that be how it's actually implemented? Like, wouldn't it go to every node? So uh, you would think that, right? So most of these implementations uh, seem to, A, first use a private blockchain. Uh, they don't want to use a public blockchain or some enterprise version or some kind of restricted version of a blockchain. And B, even if they say, yeah, okay, we will put it on a public blockchain, basically have the data go through a initial server, like it'll have, they'll have a web server or an API server sitting in between that the user interface or the mobile device that the user is using points to, uh, and then from there onwards, it is then relayed to the blockchain, right? So it's a traditional kind of a three-tier architecture where you have your front end, your middleware, and then your back end, and the back end happens to be a blockchain, right? So obviously that's where uh, a lot of the challenges happen. So I think a good example would be uh, something that has been in the news recently, past couple of years, uh, this uh, company called Votes, uh, V-O-A-T-Z. They have a mobile voting platform and uh, they've actually uh, even been used. So this is, they, they actually claim to be the first uh, actual production public use of uh, the blockchain voting app in the US. And it was used for the Arizona party convention. And it was also used uh, in Virginia, West Virginia, for uh, overseas soldiers and uh, US overseas uh, citizens to be able to uh, vote for their uh, local county elections. So this was used uh, in these elections and uh, there was some controversy around it. There were reports that came out saying that there were numerous security issues, votes in place. Basically, they came back and said, no, we had it uh, audited by third parties, including uh, uh, government security departments. And they refused to provide the details, but said that, you know, they have it's been audited successfully. So 
the most interesting one that I found uh, that we found was uh, this particular paper by MIT, where MIT researchers basically reverse engineered the word smartphone and kind of focused on the smartphone uh, and exposed the flaws in the smartphone. So one of the things that Wart's claim on their white paper, right, is that they have a lot of measures to secure, quote-unquote, their mobile application. So when their mobile application is downloaded, if you have a compromised phone or if you have a phone that is jailbroken or rooted or in in some form uh, they say that they don't allow their application to be installed and uh, they also say that they have uh, quote-unquote end-to-end security and they use some of the secure data store features of the phones uh, of the latest phones Uh, so their application will not install in any old any phone it has to it had the phone has to actually meet certain uh, operating system requirements and security requirements before they get installed. Uh, so, so these are all claims that are made in the white paper. Before we go into it a little bit, uh, just in the interest of laying out the architecture, at a very high level, uh, what Wartz basically has is they have a mobile app uh, that, uh, like I said earlier, um, does a bunch of tests and uh, checks and uh, installs itself into a phone. They use, in, in, you sign into the mobile app and it basically asks you for your picture and a picture of an ID card, so like a, a driving license or a passport. This is then basically matched together so that your ID is established and then, then that ID basically is used to search in the database to see what elections are relevant to you. So essentially, you know, where are you based and what elections are you eligible to vote in? And uh, then once you're matched to an eligible election, you can then go ahead and submit a ballot uh, request and the ballot request comes in, comes back and you can uh, see the ballot and make your choices and submit the choices to the votes API server. So all of this is basically with the votes API server, uh, except for the identity check, which is done through a third party. And uh, then what happens is that the... Just a quick question, uh, Nikhil, since you mentioned about the ID check, does that happen online uh, using third party or do you have to physically... So so there is a third party uh, service provider that does this uh, online check it matches the uh, picture that you've taken of your face with the picture on the ID and uh, uh, kind of identifies you through face recognition technology. Then the details of the ID card, the picture of the ID card you've taken, they do a scan of that, uh, pull up uh, all the, you know, the ID card number and uh, address and name, etc. And then that spots is then used, uh, passed on to the votes server election eligibility is then determined by the vote server so once you actually submit a ballot to the vote server api that is then quote-unquote anonymized uh, and uh, uh, submitted into the blockchain uh, as a anonymous vote against a particular with a particular set of information whatever candidates that you vote for uh, that is uh, submitted, and then uh, there is a separate interface for the 
uh, election officials to then validate that and uh, look at which candidates have got how many votes, etc., etc. Right. So this is basically the high-level architecture. So you have this mobile application in the in the middle. There is a identity service that is doing the identity check. Votes uh, has their own API server, and that API server basically then does its own comparison to find out which elections uh, you are eligible for, and then the actual ballot submission is again through the API server to the uh, blockchain. Uh, the blockchain itself is a private blockchain where they claim they've got uh, multiple nodes running on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. And uh, since uh, the claim is that it's in these multiple nodes, uh, there is less chance of uh, you know tampering. Uh, they have uh, a group of eight or nine nodes, some of which are available to the election officials or can be are accessible to the election officials so that they can actually do the tallying of the elections. Obviously, like I said earlier, the MIT security researchers, they picked up the uh, latest version of the Android phone at that point in time when they were doing their report and reverse engineered it. They found a significant flaws in their analysis. So this is basically the problem that they had. Uh, is that say a, all of these claims that were put in the white paper weren't necessarily exactly what was claimed when you looked at the code that was implemented, right? And uh, finally, there was a controversy when we when they submitted the results. Votes basically came back and said, "Hey, that's an old version. This is no longer the case." The latest versions are secure, and uh, anyway, that's not an official audit because we didn't authorize it. One of the things that uh, the MIT folks had mentioned is that Votes has been repeatedly denying any requests to look at their uh, a detailed design or even a uh, or their code, uh, their source code, claiming that you know intellectual property and they didn't want their competitors to be able to steal their uh, ideas and uh, again that's that's again a fundamental point that i want to kind of raise which is personally i don't think a public election uh, something as something as uh, fundamental uh, to society as an election should be actually subject to intellectual property and the competition uh, kind of uh, approach uh, in the sense that if you are wanting to work in the space as a private company i think you should be obliged to share the the process in which you're doing this because by definition that's part of the public right to know right the election process thus far is publicly known right the process that you described is very obvious, very clear. Even the electronic voting machine or the electronic voting uh, appliances, they just automate one part of it and there is a clear specification of how those machines are built. So trying to say that, you know, this is our intellectual property or this particular uh, is, is not, in my, in my sense, actually a negative and should disqualify such companies from being eligible to you know offer their system as voting mechanism for uh, public elections so that's a little bit on the uh, the votes mobile platform another couple of ones that i looked at uh, one is called follow my vote one of the things i found about follow my vote 
at least when I looked at it, was that it seems to be still at a pretty conceptual stage right now. They I haven't seen much evidence of them actually being used anywhere. Uh, though again, I might be wrong. I looked at their presentation. Uh, they have a couple of videos and a white uh, white paper as well. I think the white paper was pretty generic. Spent ninety percent of it explaining what a blockchain is and the basics of how blockchains work. There was not that much about uh, the specifics of their system, uh, but from what I could understand from their demo videos, it looked like they were also following a similar mechanism to the votes mechanism, where they were handling both uh, an online identification flow along with the voting being done through an API server. So that's two of the private companies. Uh, the other in- interesting thing that came out recently, I think, KK, you had mentioned earlier, is the United States Postal Service. So apparently the United States Postal Service had uh, filed a ap- patent application in 2019 uh, regarding a blockchain voting system, which basically uh, was kept confidential as a matter of course for 18 months and has now been published. Uh, I believe it was published in the beginning of August. And uh, while I have not had a chance to go through it in detail, uh, patent applications are notoriously difficult to parse because of the legalese and the attempts to kind of keep it as broad-based and you know neutral as possible. There were a lot of diagrams and uh, things, but the general idea that I understood from that uh, is that, you know, what they are doing is they're trying to keep two uh, different databases. So they have uh, the blockchain database that is holding the actual votes. Uh, These are actually a combination of the uh, choice as well as a unique identifier of the candidate that the choice went against. And that's that's kept separately. There is no information about the voter who actually voted in that particular in the in the blockchain. Uh, what is done basically is that the the process of identifying uh, and validating the ballot is done uh, through another system. This is where the United States Postal Service basically comes in, which is essentially uh, there is an online. Uh, system where there are they offer multiple routes you can go and register yourself with an election official or you can uh, register yourself through an online portal but again in both cases your uh, application is verified by an election official or uh, a county district clerk that is actually separate so once you have been validated and your eligibility has been validated a paper ballot with a QR code is sent to you Right, so this is sent via the United States Postal Service. This is where they use leveraging the their postal capabilities. Right, so they mail that to you. You get it in the mail, and you take that QR code and scan it using your uh, mobile app, or you can even do it uh, where you actually mark your take that mobile ballot with you to a physical uh, voting location. Uh, and scan it using the equipment located in the county clerk's office or wherever the voting locations of is situated. In both these cases, if you are doing it through the app, you you get your choices. You make your choice. 
that uh, is sent to a separate database that sits within the USPS. Uh, there is a validation that is done by the county clerk where they look at that and uh, validate that this is a valid vote. When the QR code basically is, is scanned and uh, you make your choice, the choice itself is basically elector, uh, elect, uh, is signed and encrypted and signed uh, using your uh, a unique ID that is that the QR code has. And uh, the county official basically all all they need to do is validate that signature uh, that okay this is a valid vote and then the actual vote is sent to the blockchain and is available for audit purposes uh, of a car tallying at a later point. The signature does not reveal anything about you and uh, the fact that you voted is basically deleted from the USPS database after the validation is done. So that's basically that system. I think they're going down the right path in kind of uh, separating out identification and voting and storing it in two different places but I think there is still some weaknesses uh, for example you could tamper with the actual uh, USPS database in in between and one of the things that I uh, I'm not sure less from a technology perspective more from a process perspective one of the interesting things about the current electoral voting where you go to a voting booth and vote is like KK had pointed out, right? You have members of all the parties sitting over there. So the uh, Republican and the Democrat party, you have representatives from both of them sitting over there to kind of vet the person coming in, right? So it requires both of them to agree that, okay, yeah, this person is a valid voter. He has not repeatedly, he's not coming again and he's, he's actually... Uh, the person he says he is uh, and then there is a representative of each party uh, on the other side once the uh, when the when the voter comes in to put the ballot inside the ballot box there is a voter over there making sure that only one ballot is being put and the ingenuity of this particular method is the fact that there is uh, members of all the parties the political parties that are participating representatives are there to kind of keep each other honest right whereas in the USPS system and the mail-in system in general you're relying on the honesty of government officials who are part of the bureaucracy and can be kind of compromised right so the point uh, I see there are a few tweaks I would put into this particular system kind of uh, like in my ideal system, there would be a way for members of the political parties or representatives to kind of be participating in this political process and they need to ratify a vote uh, before it actually gets pushed into uh, the blockchain, right? So so that's, that's one of the small tweaks that I would do. But other than that, I think I, I really like the one that the USPS has put out so far. I mean, uh, to be clear, I haven't gone into depth. Uh, but uh, what I've understood so far, it seems to make sense. Thanks, Nikhil, for like a really nice explanation of, you know, the various processes that are involved in all these different approaches that these different companies or entities are taking, you know, to use blockchain as a technology to uh, facilitate the voting. At the outset, 
even though blockchains look very attractive as a potential game changer for the way voting has been happening in the past 200 years uh, like you very correctly explained you know there are uh, significant challenges you know there are multiple attack surfaces beyond blockchains you know where the whole process could be compromised so i guess the, the, there's a lot to figure out you know <laughs> before some version of this uh, Gets no, no, absolutely, I agree with you. There is a lot of attack surfaces and a lot to be figured out. I think there is a path uh, and one of those uh, paths is basically making this public and open source, whatever process or whatever software. I don't think this is something that can be made private uh, and not viewable by everybody. A patent might be a good idea just so that you can enforce intellectual property, but uh, I don't think you can keep it secret. So, but uh, I think uh, one of the things we should also look at is how this is being used in other countries because I know that I think the US in this particular case, at least in terms of voting, seems to be a little on the back backward side. Uh, there are other countries. Uh, KK, could you kind of just talk a little bit, uh, an outline of some of the other uh, efforts in other countries uh, in this particular area of blockchain voting? Sure, sure. So let's just quickly take a look at, you know, some of the other countries, you know, where uh, some form of blockchain voting has been tried, tested, has been put out for tests, right? So uh, the first one I'll mention is Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland, as we know, you know, is is one of the pro-crypto, pro-blockchain countries. In uh, June 20, uh, 2018, uh, the city of Zug, which is uh, also popularly known as the Crypto Valley in uh, Switzerland, they had uh, piloted this e-voting system, which was built on a blockchain. For this purpose, they used uh, the Uport app, which is an Ethereum-based identity solution. And this is very similar to the, the Votes app that, that you described in the, uh, you know, previously. So uh, how this would work is that a resident of the city would download the Uport app on their phone. And the app would generate a unique private key with which you know, the, the, the person can recover their identity even if they lost their phone. And then as a next step, the person would visit uh, the city of Zug's website uh, and register over there by scanning a QR code from their app. And uh, in this step, they would enter their date of birth and uh, passport details on the uh, city's website. And then as a next step, and, and this is where it's slightly different from the, the whole votes process that I asked you about earlier, Nikhil. So in this step, you know, they would actually visit the, uh, uh, the city of Zug's Canton office uh, in person. Uh, to verify their identity within the first 14 days, you know, after they have registered online. So basically, you know, they would go into this office to ensure that, okay, the, the passport details that have been uploaded, I am the same person and, you know, the person is verified. And uh, once this process is complete, the person is issued uh, what is known as the ZUG ID, right? And uh, using this ID, they can, uh, there, there would be uh, different elections that would list out in the, in the votes app, uh, sorry, in the in the uh, Uport app, which would show that okay, uh, this person is eligible to vote in these these elections, and these these services could be made available to them, and all of those things, right? So uh, this is you know just a pilot that was tested out in in Zug uh, in Switzerland in 2018, and uh, I believe about uh, 350 people had successfully created a digital identity using uh, this Uport app and out of this about 70 people had actually voted just to test this out. They had voted on some local issue you know which was like uh, whether they should have uh, fireworks uh, at an upcoming festival or not. Basically the point here was you know just to prove that okay uh, this sort of a digital voting mechanism can actually take place and you know you can actually incorporate 
blockchain-based identity solution to actually implement this. So uh, the second uh, one that, that I want to talk about is uh, from South Korea. So it comes from Seoul in South Korea. And uh, so back in 2017, uh, the city of Seoul uh, launched a program called Democracy Seoul, uh, which was aimed at uh, enabling the citizens to propose various issues that they can debate on and then vote on them, right? So in, in a process like this, you know, once the public has discussed uh, and debated uh, and, and finally voted on, on a specific issue, the final step is basically the city's mayor or the local government actually responding to the voted proposal and actually taking an action on that based on what, what the public will is on that specific issue. So um, as a part of this same program in 2018, the Seoul Metropolitan Government had actually launched uh, what they called the Blockchain City Seoul project. So Seoul would be like a blockchain city going into the future as, as per the program. So and, and this was based on the Icon Loop blockchain, uh, which is a public blockchain, I guess. And uh, the plan here is to use blockchain to record the voting data, like, like Nikhil had previously mentioned. You know, it would be used uh, as an alternative to the centralized database. This would thereby improve transparency and prevent forgery and you know, eliminate the problem of du uh, duplicate voting, etc. As per different reports, the goal over here is to implement uh, blockchain technology into 14 different administrative tasks uh, in Seoul by 2022. And uh, also, you know, there were some reports that the city actually has a larger plan, uh, has a grander plan to introduce blockchain to many other processes, you know, like, for example, to make the sales of used cars more trustworthy by putting more information about uh, cars and, you know, what their history is and accident record, all that, you know, by, by recording this, this different sort of data on the blockchain. Then there's another, you know, case where the city is looking to protect the rights of early workers by, by putting certain information about their work hours and stuff uh, on, on the blockchain. So these are some of the larger uh, plans with, you know, including blockchain into certain administrative processes beyond voting, right? And the third example that I want to talk about is that of Russia. So this September, uh, Russia will be piloting a blockchain-based e-voting system developed by uh, the Waves Enterprise team. In, so Waves already has a public blockchain, and this is the enterprise uh, side of their operations. So they will be implementing this in partnership with a company called uh, Ross Telecom, and the voting will be deployed on the Waves enterprise chain, uh, not the public one. So uh, the announcement actually just came a few days back. So we don't know a lot about it yet. You know, it, it literally like it was just about three four days back. From what we know so far, the Waves enterprise team has said that you know they will be using zero knowledge proofs and some of the advanced techniques, you know, in, in cryptography as a, as a part of the solution. The team has basically stated that, you know, they'll be using five different encryption keys, you know, which are generated in a decentralized manner using a blockchain. And uh, once the voting has taken place, in order to decrypt the results of the voting, one would need to have five uh, corresponding private keys to do so. So ideally speaking, this would, you know, this would be best to be in the hands of a body independent from the government, you know, a, se a separate body which would have this access. So this voting system will have its first run for the State Duma, which is the lower house of the Federal Assembly of Russia. And uh, this voting is uh, set to happen on uh, 13th of September, uh, this coming month. So I would say, you know, this is the first major country to conduct a blockchain-based voting uh, at the federal level. And again, like Nikhil had mentioned earlier, uh, this is again on, on a private chain and most of these solutions are so far. 
So these are some of the other efforts, you know, so some of the other trials of blockchain technology that are happening in, you know, voting processes around the world. Nikhil, looks like, you know, the, the, there's a lot of different things happening, but significant challenges ahead. Uh, do you want to quickly uh, summarize basically, you know, what, what the future holds? So it's, 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 it's interesting, uh, KK. So from the perspective of the risks of the, on, block, on this particular blockchain voting system, one of the interesting things about it is that, you know, unlike other domains that we've covered, like Bitcoin and Ethereum on finance, or uh, even systems uh, like blockchain in uh, gaming, or blockchain in manufacturing, etc., there is the threat of the nation state, right? So this actually came to uh, sharp relief in 2016 in the US uh, with the alleged uh, interference from Russia. Uh, And generally, there has been a general idea that, okay, nation states uh, are a significant threat uh, that needs to be considered, especially in uh, things like voting, uh, the electoral process of a country, right? So when you take uh, the nation state as a threat vector, a lot of things that previously would not make economic sense suddenly becomes also a part of it right so for example if you can take uh, let us very quickly take one of these private uh, networks so a lot of the uh, blockchain solutions right now the voting solutions right now basically envision private blockchains of a small number of nodes right and while it may not be feasible for one hacker group or maybe few individuals determined individuals it is less likely that they would be able to overcome or get a 51% do a, execute something like a 51% attack on a small number of nodes even a relatively larger number of nodes uh, on a few uh, few platforms uh, this is definitely within the scope of a nation state right so one of the things that you have to first then realize that okay if you are doing this we need to think of blockchains of that kind of scale uh, and security at that kind of level, right? So again, when you say, okay, I'm going to keep my application and mobile application, I'm going to put in measures to make sure that it has not been compromised or rooted or uh, jailbroken uh, phones are not allowed. You also have to take into consideration that there may be zero day attacks or you could imagine that maybe the NSA was trying to compromise the phone right or uh, you have something at the telecom level uh, where nation states could interfere right so this this kind of these kind of threats basically make it extremely hard to kind of approve or uh, for security so when you take that kind of a risk uh, or a, uh, that kind of a thre- uh, threat risk the systems that might have seemed adequate for a business enterprise or even a financial enterprise no longer makes sense, right? They, 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 you need even a higher level of, of accountability. And this is where I think a lot of the security experts are coming back and saying, hey, we need to use cryptographic techniques. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why if you, uh, like you mentioned, KK Waves is looking at zero knowledge proofs and other cryptographic techniques because we need mathematically proven techniques to be able to make sure that these properties of uh, valid identity uh, but anonymous voting 
and uh, accountability, uh, the ability to be able to count a vote properly afterwards or audit a vote, uh, uh, an election without compromising the privacy of individual uh, uh, individuals. All of these, uh, basically, you need new cryptographic uh, techniques that are not there yet. And uh, a lot of security experts say that they have not reached the level of maturity or the level of acceptability that makes them viable at this point. So these are some of the things that we need to consider when we're talking about risks to online uh, voting systems. And to be clear, this is not something that is a knock on the eligibility of blockchain per se uh, or uh, blockchain networks per se. It's just a matter of the scale of the threat, right? So even if you look at blockchain's immutability, quote-unquote, that is a function of the size of the network, right? And most of the networks basically uh, that are sufficiently large to be able to credibly withstand nation-state attacks are uh, networks like Ethereum or Bitcoin. And these are public networks where your data is transparent. Right, so that kind of makes the whole anonymity of uh, voters' argument uh, <laughs> more difficult. Right, so you need to separate that out. So th- there's these different aspects that uh, one needs to consider. And uh, at the end of the day, right now, I think, in my opinion, uh, the best systems would be a hybrid of where you validate identities or use identities in offline uh, physical space, meet space, uh, and then uh, maybe use the blockchain mainly as a storage of the actual word itself uh, without any identifying information attached. But even there, there are questions about, okay, you know, how does the user interface get built? Uh, Can I block or uh, do denial of service? on voting processes. Uh, so, so there's a bunch of things that need, still need to be addressed. One of the reasons why blockchain voting or online voting as in general is, uh, I feel, inevitable is the fact that given the current global situa- situation with the pandemic, it is no longer right or feasible to expect all your citizens to come to a physical location uh, and vote. All right, folks, that concludes our podcast. We hope that you found this episode on blockchain voting useful. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us on bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.